Well, welcome to Michael Easley in Context. It is my delight, my honor to have two authors on the broadcast today. A book that was written by Gregory Lanier and William Ross is called The Septuagint, What It Is and Why It Matters. Now, for most of our listeners, you have heard me, if you've heard some of the Bible teaching we do here, talk about the Septuagint as a corpus of information, not just one book. And this might be a little bit of a stretch for some of our audience, but our goal here is education. As long as, you know, as you're along for the ride, we want to help people grow in their knowledge of these things. And when I saw Crossway with this book, I wanted to talk to the two authors and they're they're willing to be on the broadcast with me today. So we have Dr. Gregory Lanier and William Ross. And rather than me read your bios, Greg, tell us a little bit about your story, how you got where you are, and then I'll go to Will. So Will and I are actually colleagues at Reformed Theological Seminary, but different campuses. I'm in Orlando. He's in Charlotte. I teach New Testament here mainly and a few other things, and I'll let him fill you in on himself. He's the Old Testament half of our uh, dynamic duo, if you will. I thought you were going to say the old uh, guy. I'm the older one. But, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I'm married to Kate. We have three girls, and we've been in Florida for about six years. And Will and I actually met at the University of Cambridge over in the UK, and that's how we started collaborating on various projects. I actually went to Reform Theological Seminary Charlotte, where Will teaches, so that's where I did my master's degree. And then before that, I worked in business as just sort of an interested layperson, getting interested in the Bible. And so um, went to UNC Chapel Hill. Anyway, so that's kind of the backward story of me. But yeah, that's and I'm, I'm also a part-time pastor at a local Presbyterian church in Orlando as well. Nice. So you're not busy. That's good. <laughs> Generically, has you guys back meeting in person in school? Yeah, we, I guess both campuses have been back since the fall good. or summer, really, in some sense. So yeah. Yeah. Dr. Ross, how about yourself? Give us a little background on who yeah, you are. Yeah, like Greg said, I am a professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And I've been here on campus for about three years, almost three years now. And before that, was at Cambridge, did my dissertation there on Septuagint-related topics. So I've been interested in this area for a while now. I did my MDiv at Westminster Theological Seminary. In Philadelphia, that's where I'm from originally, and yeah, so been kind of at the Septuagint for about five or six years altogether. Let's start out with the most basic question. Many Christians, I mean, if you're in a good Bible teaching church, you might hear the pastor refer to the Septuagint, but odds are that's going to be a pretty small group of people in the pew who ever heard of this corpus of literature called the Septuagint. So one of y'all, I guess I'll toss it to Dr. Lanier. Start out giving the introduction, what's the Septuagint for a person that doesn't know what it is or has never heard about it? Sure. Probably the simplest answer is it is something that you bump into in the footnotes, uh, <laughs> you bump into it in the footnotes as early as Genesis 2 or as late as Genesis 4 in your Bible, unless it's the King James Bible, which wouldn't reference it because it doesn't have footnotes. But your ESV, NIV, Christian Standard, they all reference it numerous times in the Old Testament. And so even if you don't know how to say the word or spell the word, you have actually bumped into it, at least if you've paid attention to the footnotes. And so it is something that's not sort of hiding. It's not some sort of conspiracy that your pastor has kept from you. It is a, a known thing that most Bible translations make reference to. And in a nutshell, we could define it as a process or a collection of translations of the original Hebrew 
Old Testament, for lack of a better term, into Greek. That's basically what it is. And this was done because the lingua franca, by the time we get to the printing press and so forth, the lingua franca is going to be Greek, not Hebrew or Aramaic. And so, right? So we're translating the Bible from Hebrew into the more common Greek language, correct? Yes, although it's far earlier than the printing press, but yes. No, I'm, but I'm speaking of by the time we get there, now we've got this language that, you know, obviously we're going to German, but I jumped gotcha, ahead. Gotcha. But my point being, it's a text more people could read, because even in that time when the Septuagint's being translated, how many people could read Hebrew? Right. It, it was on the wane, much much <laughs> like today. So Yeah, yeah. So the, but, you know, so the impetus for it is not really that different from the impetus to translate the Bible into English or any other language. Correct. It was the same basic idea. I like that. Will, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, the need for Scripture in a language everybody was speaking is definitely a major impetus. There may have been other factors or motivations involved, but that I think everybody generally agrees that that was one of them. Maybe the main one, certainly a factor. When we look at the Masoretic text, for example, and how that then has several different Septuagint versions, we could pick a word— is that not unlike, or is it an unfair comparison to say, you mentioned NIV, CSV, ESV, and NASB, whatever, they might have a marginal reading, literal, the word is such and such, or they might have the transliterated word in the margin. Is that kind of what the Septuagint was doing with Hebrew, or is that inaccurate? It kind of depends on how you mean Septuagint, I guess. I mean, there are different phases of the translation effort that we could kind of look at as different steps along the way in the lifespan of the Septuagint. So you have the sort of original translation effort of the Greek Pentateuch, which would have been historically the first to come into existence. And about what time would that be, Will? When would that have been So generally speaking, sometime in the mid-3rd century BC is kind of the consensus at this point. That's taking place in Egypt, Greek-speaking, Greek-ruled Egypt, and among Jews. And then later translations of other books of the Hebrew Bible are completed in the subsequent two or three centuries, not by the same people, and not always necessarily even in the same spot, mostly in Egypt, not always in the same place in Egypt, some back in uh, Judea. So we don't have a huge amount of detail on the timeline and the process itself, but as that process unfolded, there are retranslations or revisions that start as well. So to a certain extent, you know, I think we want to not envision the Septuagint translation like a modern Bible translation because it's not done by consensus and committee all at once. But there are some parallels in the sense that modern Bible translations exist because there are different views on what constitutes a good translation. That is true of why there were revisions and retranslations of the Hebrew texts as well. So there are some parallels. So when we talk about formal equivalency, dynamic equivalency, and there's different iterations of even that you mentioned, Greg, the uh, now it's called the Christian Standard Bible that was the Holman Christian Standard. They dropped Holman. They talk about this sort of in-between ground of not dynamic or formal equivalency. Ed Bloom, I think, was the head project for a while. It's kind of technical, but just for, again, for my sake and for our listeners' sake, the Septuagint as a body of literature is going to have, let's say, some are going to be formal equivalent, some are going to be dynamic. Is that even a fair comparison or not? 
Am I making any sense? No, I think so. Yeah, I think broadly, yes, that's probably a useful way to think about it. And Will's more of an expert on this than me. But if you look at different chunks of the Greek tradition, certain books are going to be more word for word, like the Pentateuch is going to be originally, it's you know, as it was originally translated, it's going to be closer to kind of a word for word NASB style. And then other books are going to be a little bit more inclining towards paraphrase or kind of a looser translation. That's not meant to sort of say it's a bad translation. It's just a different philosophy, just like in English. So yeah, you do have a bit of a spectrum. And we use that actually as an analogy in the book to at least try to give a modern reader some sort of hook to hang their hat on to understand what's going on. There's a lot of moving parts, but I think that's a useful metaphor. Let me back up then. Maybe I should have begun this way. Help the modern reader understand why he or she should have any interest in this document called the Septuagint, a.k.a. LXX. Yeah, I can take it from the uh, the New Testament side, and then Will can chime in on the Old Testament side. But as I already mentioned, you know, <laughs> if you look at the footnotes in most of your modern Bibles, you're going to see it. And so just knowing what that means okay. is really helpful. So that you're not kind of scared that it's some sort of conspiracy. And in fact, some English translations... Even ones that are very textually conservative, you know, they will go with a reading from the Greek Old Testament when they think the Hebrew has somehow gotten garbled. But I can leave that for Will. So bumping into it alone is a good reason to care. But from a New Testament perspective, it is pretty demonstrable that many times when an author like Paul or Matthew or John or whomever when they're drawing on the Old Testament, they are often, not exclusively, but often drawing on its Greek form. And that may match the, like, quote-unquote Septuagint you can buy on Amazon. It may be something slightly different. But either way, we can tell that they are drawing on a Greek version as opposed to sort of retranslating the Hebrew in whatever shape it took in their day. And sometimes that is a minor difference. Sometimes it's, it can be substantial. And so we go through some of the more important examples and so that alone, and that's often kind of the gateway for people to even get interested as they see that the New Testament is drawing on the Septuagint, quote-unquote. And so if that's true, if Paul's quoting this quote-unquote Septuagint of Isaiah, then it's important. It's important for us to, to go and understand what it is. And for my readers, Greg, Paul probably didn't have scrolls of all these things, correct? A lot of this was memory, or am I mistaken? No, well, it's hard to pin down exactly. No doubt he would have had... A lot of it memorized like a good Pharisee. As he's traveling around, there's no reason to think he couldn't have visited your local synagogue in Antioch or Caesarea or wherever. And if he needed to go look something up, he could go look it up there. As a synagogue attending Jew or a church attending Christian, however you want to call it, he would have heard scripture read and there would have been a liturgical use of Isaiah, like in Luke 4 or what have you. And so there's a way he would have interacted with it that way. And whenever he tells, at the end of 2 Timothy, he mentions to Timothy, you know, bring the scrolls and the books and the parchments. It's possible that that's referring to, you know, some version of or some collection of scriptural writings that he may have had at his disposal. It may not have been the whole thing, which would have been quite a thing to carry, but he could have had collected, you know, best of the Old Testament for the purposes of missionary writings. There's a variety of ways he could have accessed it. And same thing is true for other apostolic authors as well. It's hard to pin down. You exactly. make a point. They probably didn't have a leather monogrammed, right. you know, crossway ESV in with their, their back. With their, their name on it, yeah, two tone color, yeah. <laughs> so when we read a, and you'll often see this in study Bibles or in the apparatus of a NASB or ESV, you'll see those notes, and they'll be you know literal or LXX or some version say. And, you know, again, I try to slow down and talk to our folks about that, but not all churches are going to have a pastor that's trained that way or 
that cares to mention it. But what we're saying in those, let's say, optional readings, we're not challenging the authenticity or the inerrancy of Scripture. We're saying from the transmission of the Hebrew text into the Greek translation, a.k.a. the Septuagint, there weren't always word-for-word equivalencies. I tell our people, the only word you probably know in Hebrew that was transliterated is camel, from gamal to camel, (laughs) right? There's just not a lot. But in Greek, we have tons of words that were transliterated. Baptism, you know, that baptizo was brought in because we didn't have an equivalency. So I try to help our people that way, not to take away inerrancy or authority, but to say Babel had a big consequence. And even in writing the scripture, there were errors in that transmission of that, not errors in the so-called autographs, right? right? Am I okay to say those things, yeah. guys? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, in the uh, the final chapter of the book, one of the big things we do is try to tease out. If you're trying to figure out, you know, a big question for, for modern Christians is, who sort of wake up to this uh, Septuagint idea is like, you know, if Paul's using the Septuagint sometimes, should we use it? And what does that mean? Does it have authority? Uh, and how do we relate it to the Hebrew? And so we try to sort of tease some of that out. You know, the point at which Scripture is given by God, we would still locate that in the Hebrew as originally given. But the Septuagint plays this interesting role where even if it's an imperfect translation, it was still read by the Greek-speaking Jews and Christians as the Word of God, just like a church that's reading the NIV is treating it functionally as the Word of God, even though they know that it's not it's sort of— Really? It's, really? Even if it's not <laughs> precisely <laughs> equal to, because it's not the Hebrew or the Greek, it's still being treated that way. Right. And even if you know, well, you know, a pastor might say, well, I don't really think this is the right translation. I'd probably go with this. They're not trying to sort of say you should challenge everything. It just means that there's different ways to try to capture it. So— so yeah, I think you're on safe ground with what you just said, and we don't want to imply that the Septuagint is inspired in the same way, but we want to say, okay, to the extent that it's faithful, it was totally fair game for Paul or John to use. There's no reason why they wouldn't. They're not going to sort of force everybody in Athens to go learn Hebrew. They're going to use whatever Bible and that language that they could to make their point. So. We'll jump in there. Greg tossed a couple of points to you about the Old Testament and how it's rendered in the Septuagint, and then some right. of the... Okay, implications, what's that mean? Yeah, so I would say in terms of an Old Testament side of the equation for why, you know, lay people might be interested in the Septuagint, why you should be, our English Bibles, by and large, are based on a translation of a Hebrew text called the Masoretic Text that, you know, dates back to about the 10th century A.D. in terms of the oldest physical manuscript that we have that is a complete Bible. It's called Codex Leningradensis. And it is very well preserved, very ancient in terms of the, the text that it preserves. But one of the big reasons that the Septuagint has always been an important, it is actually the oldest text critical witness to the Hebrew Bible because it dates all the way back about a thousand years earlier or more, like I said, at the earliest to the third century BC. So for most of the history of the church, the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, has been the best way to have a second witness to whatever the Old Testament says at any given verse, right? Now, that was the case all the way up until the 1940s when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And one of the reasons it was such a huge event is that suddenly we had Hebrew texts that were in many cases, a full millennium earlier 
than the uh, otherwise oldest Hebrew text we had. So that was a big Okay, moment. let me stop you there, Will, because I want folks to understand what you just said. I lead tours to Israel, and I often comment about the what's probably the Essene community, maybe the scriptorium right near the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we spend quite a lot of time in those two sentences. You said it better than I'll ever say it, but I want people that don't understand this. In 40s, when the boy threw a rock in a cave and heard a clunk, and they found these clay jars, vessels, and the scriptoriums were ancient copy machines. And these men wrote the Bible on a scroll when an error was made they would count the characters, and if an error was made, they couldn't destroy it because it's God's word, right? So we put it in a crock and bury it in the desert. The discovery of them, and you can, this is your field, not mine, but there were thousands of manuscripts and lectionaries and fragments that were discovered in the so-called Dead Sea right. Scroll recovery. And those stories are you know, made for, it'd be great Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg yeah, right. movies, right? But when they started reading these, and if you go to the museum in Jerusalem, you'll see a facsimile of the book of Isaiah, for example, which is beautiful because it shows how the panels were written, how they were attached, because they're not in a mm-hmm. book form, like Greg talked about, an ESV copy with you know two tones and your initials on it. This was a scroll. Yes. So what you just said, go through that slower. We found a document right. now that's older than the oldest Septuagint right. we so have. So let's say it's 1935, the oldest complete Hebrew Bible that anybody knows about, it dates to about A.D. 1000. Now, fast forward 10 years, it's 1945, and suddenly we have actual physical manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible that are a full millennium older than that. And so part of the excitement and the buzz, even the media buzz around that discovery was, aha, now we'll finally see how different the ancient copies were from the Masoretic text, that 1000 AD text. That was the expectation. But in fact, by and large, they said the exact same thing down to the letter as the Hebrew Bible that I mentioned, the Masoretic text. Now, there's lots of exceptions to that. The exceptions are usually fairly minor and some are more considerable. And this is actually an interesting point to raise in terms of the importance of the Septuagint or something about the translation of the Septuagint in general. It's not always the case that a Septuagint translator was working from a Hebrew text that is the same kind of Hebrew text that our English Bibles, German and French Bibles, are based on, right? So there were other versions, we could say, of certain books of the Old Testament in circulation at the time to various scopes and degrees. And sometimes the translators working from that copy for one reason or another, maybe it's the only thing they had access to or whatever. And so that accounts for some of the textual variation in Greek that we see. So there's a lot, like Greg said, a lot of moving parts in it, but it's not always a translation question. Sometimes it's a source text question in terms of the differences we see in the Greek Septuagint and our modern English Bibles. And part of the challenge, I think, that a layperson who hasn't looked into a lot of this in a lot of detail, because it's very complicated as soon as you do that, is that we tend to think that history's always worked with like Google Drive and Dropbox and word processors where everything's identical. And, and you know, God gave the words on golden tablets and then we just copied and pasted it and that's how it all worked. And so it's all the same. And that's just not how history worked. And so... It doesn't mean that there's anything to kind of be afraid of or that the Bible is wrong or what have you, but it just it helps to understand that 
local Jewish communities had at times various copies of the Hebrew because it wasn't always copied perfectly. And then whenever you sort of layer the translation effort on top of that, that further introduces complexities. Or you might have two different copies of the Hebrew and then you got two translations on top of that. And so who's using what? And so that's where the complexity comes from. It does start to make your kind of head spin after a while. Talk to me a little bit about oral tradition, because prior to having these copies, these stories were told. I remember I had Alan Ross for Hebrew in seminary, brilliant, brilliant Hebrew professor. And I remember Dr. Ross saying that the Psalms in particular were completely memorized by most scribes and Hebrew students. And it was not uncommon, you know, like we might know a few hymns in the average, you know, Christian home, quote unquote, we might know some hymns verbatim. They knew the Psalms. In fact, if memory serves, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Andover required a complete memorization of the Psalms for entrance. You had to have committed it to memory. So when we think about oral tradition, people say, well, if you told the story over and over, it would lose, you know, accuracy and it wouldn't be an error anymore. So I know this is a little bit off script from the Septuagint, but invariably you had to think through this. Right. I think these work in similar but different ways, this idea for Old Testament and New Testament, respectively. But it's absolutely true. I mean, there's lots of reason to think that at an early phase, depending on what book we're talking about, book of the... Hebrew Bible, that the stories or sections, whether it's a psalm or a portion of a narrative, was transmitted orally. Maybe there was, you know, a copy or two, a hard copy kept, you know, in the temple or the tabernacle, but they were recited, I think it's safe to say. And to add yet another layer of complexity, one of the ways that the consistency and reliability of oral translation is very obvious is in the vowel pointings, the Masoretic vowels that we have in that 1000 AD manuscript. It's hard to describe if you don't know Hebrew, but essentially the way Hebrew is written, there are consonants and then there are vowels that are a bunch of jots and tittles written around those consonants. I liken it to taking a fountain pen and flicking it on text. (laughs) That's kind of what it looks like. (laughs) If you never saw it before, it would be all these little commas, dots, dashes, umlaut. Yeah. I'm sorry. After you've removed A, E, I, O, and U. Yeah. 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 No more vowels. Yeah. (laughs) 24 characters. Exactly. (laughs) Well, if you, again, if you rewind the clock a thousand years and you look at the scrolls, the Hebrew scrolls that we found at the uh, Dead Sea sites, there's no vowels. There's only consonants. Right. You know, I tell my students in Hebrew this, and they're, you know, can see them almost fall out of their chairs. And I say to them, you know, it sounds frightening, but actually one of the best ways that we can know that the Masoretic text is very well preserved and reliable is the Septuagint, right? So you look at the Septuagint and, you know, those translators, they're looking at a Hebrew text that has no vowels on it, right? And so they have to know in their mind how to pronounce those words, right? They are vocalizing it in a way that is part of their oral tradition, familiarity from the religious life of the Jews in terms of their, you know, synagogue life, teaching at home, and they're translating it into Greek in a way that we can compare with that 1000 AD scroll and say, okay, this is is exactly what we would expect, right? It aligns almost all the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time with the Masoretic text. So yeah, it is a very effective way 
in many cases, of preserving a text uh, rather than introduce. It's not like Whisper Down the Lane, you know, that sort of game that kids play, right? It doesn't always end up yeah. as something completely unrelated to what it began with. So, Greg, I mean, sure, Greg can add more to this on a New Testament yeah. side. Well, that's what you just described is why a lot of modern translations will, in certain places in the Old Testament, put in their text, not in the footnotes, but actually in the text that they're translating, they will put something from the Septuagint. Because essentially what they're recognizing is the reading that we have from the Septuagint is accurate as best as we can reconstruct. It faithfully captures what we think the original Hebrew was that they had in front of them in a place where this Masoretic text, the manuscript has talked about, where it perhaps has maybe lost some words or what have you. And so that's actually, that can sound really shocking to people or some sort of like one world conspiracy, but it's not because essentially it's saying, okay, we recognize the historical complexities. If we rewind the clock 1,200 years from the Masoretic, the Septuagint has faithfully captured a vocalized with the vowels that they learned in the synagogue and they've captured the right wording better than the Hebrew manuscript that we have at our disposal. Now, it's not all over the place, but like the ESV and others will do that because they're sort of using it text critically because we can go back and sort of reconstruct those kinds of things and say, oh, yeah, it's actually better here. We thought that this one was garbled, like the age of David, whatever, on certain passages, and now we can sort of correct it, so to speak, and get back to it. So, Again, from a pastoral teaching standpoint, I'll often use the illustration of the, the shorter and the harder reading theory versus majority text reading. Are there any parallels with Septuagint? Not really. I mean, sort of, but not really. The use of the Septuagint for Old Testament textual criticism is a very important use of the Septuagint, but it is complicated by the additional factor of the translation process. So in order to use the Septuagint to have any kind of text critical value, you first have to know what kind of translation strategy the translator of that book tended to use, right? So if you think about it this way, if a translator tends to expand his text, he's not doesn't feel particularly bound to represent it on a word-for-word basis, right? He's, you know, clarifying pronouns or he's, you know, updating geographical references. He'll maybe add a sentence to clarify this or that. And that we have books like this, right, in the Septuagint. If that's the case then the Greek text that that translator produces is not really going to help us all that much understand what his source text looks like. And so it's not going to help us with text-critical reading for our Hebrew text. On the other hand, if a translator does tend to work on a very word-by-word basis, it's very consistent, and you could almost say mechanical, I don't particularly like that word, but you get the idea, then if we see a Greek translation in a particular verse that doesn't match up with our Hebrew text, we have a pretty good idea that he was looking at a Hebrew text that differed from ours. And so now we have a text-critical witness for our Hebrew Bible. So there's a bit of a, depends on your perspective, virtuous or vicious cycle between understanding what kind of translation you're looking at and how much text-critical value that Greek version could have for the Hebrew Bible. So it is complicated by that factor. You can't just look at the Greek version and say, aha, this must be what the Hebrew text said, or aha, he had a a Hebrew text that was different from ours. It's got that extra layer. 
I kind of want to go on, but I want to see Greg. Anything you want to add to that before I jump no, no, to the I next question? Fine. Yeah, uh, okay. I think I You're think good? the answer right. to every question so far is basically it's complicated. <laughs> 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 that's what you guys do best. Yeah, that's I've decided. Scholars just they obfuscate everything, so the rest of us feel like idiots, and we have to keep y'all employed. That was a joke. Let's go back to Desi Scrolls for just a second, and either one of you jump in. I don't know how much work you've done in them as pertain to your Septuagint studies, were there any ahas for you? Like this was mind blowing when you started looking at, let me ask it this way. When you looked at either the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries and some of their issues and, or the Septuagint, was there like, wow, I never would have seen this before. Like a big surprise for you. Yeah, I can probably take that one. There's a lot, and it's not all just related to sort of translation stuff. But just don't say complicated. Yeah, okay. no, it's not at all complicated. Well, actually, well, all joking aside, I think for me, growing up a Christian, going to Reform Seminary, being a, a relatively interested layperson who liked to read harder books, even with that, I often had no idea what the complexity really was. I hadn't really heard much about the Dead Sea Scrolls other than like CNN articles about it. And, you know, I probably couldn't spell Septuagint. And so for me, when I really got into all of this, it was very exciting to see the complexity. Some folks, the complexity is like terrifying. For me, I thought it was very interesting because for me, it got me a lot closer to the world in which the Bible was circulating back then. How were they reading the Bible? What Bibles were they using in church? I mean, there's something really gratifying about saying, hey, this is actually the Bible of Isaiah or whatever that a group of Jews in, you know, east of Jerusalem were using 2,000 years ago. Like, that's pretty cool. And so there's a sort of historical, like, this is just a neat, I just enjoy that. And a lot of times when students allow themselves to be nerds, they enjoy it as well. What I tend to do with Dead Sea Scroll type stuff, but also to a degree Septuagint related things, one particular area that I found very fascinating and have done a lot of work on is what were their understandings of messianic figures? One of the reasons why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was such a big deal, other than the text critical Bible part of it, was that we had a lot of new writings from Jews around the time of Jesus and what they were thinking about, what they were praying about, what they were sort of how they were reflecting on the Bible, what they were hoping for. That we got poetry, we have apocalyptic battles between the forces of good and evil. But in particular, we have a lot of Dead Sea Scrolls that deal with messianic figures. And I say figures very intentionally because they actually talk about, A, in certain situations, two messiahs. Or when they talk about a singular messiah or something similar, a prince who's going to come or a righteous branch, using the wording of Jeremiah, it's not always the same profile. It's not the same job description. They're not all doing the same thing. Or you have Melchizedek showing up doing strange things or what have you. And so for me, that was really mind-blowing because I think I grew up thinking that everyone was assuming that the messiah was going to be one thing, like one job description, one resume for a Messiah. And historically, that's just simply not true. And in fact, I don't think the Gospels convey that, actually. When Jesus comes on the scene and he asks his disciples, you know, what do people say I am? They don't give one answer. They give multiple answers. They had different expectations, some of which were accurate, some of which were inaccurate. And really, the aha moment of the New Testament is Jesus fulfills all of those. But anyway, when you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and to a lesser degree, the Septuagint, what you get insight into is what were some Jews certain Jewish groups thinking about? How did they conceptualize a messianic figure? Uh, did they even care that a Messiah was coming? Some didn't. Some were just focused on like keeping Torah. And so for me personally, that's been a pretty exciting 
field of research. And we have some elements of that in the Septuagint book where we say there's some places where you start to see some of that in the Septuagint where there's some interpretive ideas where they're like, okay, this oracle in Genesis 49 about a son coming from Judah to rule or a star from Jacob in Numbers 24 or Psalm 2, Psalm 110, sort of key messianic passages, you start to already see some development of the ideas, even in the translation, at least arguably you do. So we do cover some of that in the book as well. Anyway, so that's what kind of gets me geeked out about the Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint, at least when I'm not just working on stuff with Will. <laughs> I don't know if Will has other... Will, big Will has totally different interests, I think, but uh, I'll let him... That's yeah. a teamwork, yeah. Will, big surprises for you when you got into this deep yeah, I mean, there's so much There's so much that's interesting about the whole Dead Sea Scroll discovery. I love reading books about the actual narrative, the history of that discovery process. There's a lot of really fun books that tell that story. So I kind of nerd out. And so I say Spielberg and Hanks have got uh, yeah, to me. If you're going to do Dan Brown nonsense, at least do one on the Dead Sea yeah. Scrolls. Come on, he's a good yeah, Jew, right? Yeah, I, it's such a fascinating story. And recent forgeries. right. Yeah, well, it blew my mind was insoles. They were using the parchment for insoles on sandals. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating because, so I'll give you the kind of one of the really fascinating discoveries of mine, just in terms of learning something new, and then an interesting recent discovery. So you tend to hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls primarily for all the differences that they preserve from the Hebrew Bible, all the textual plurality and variation. And, you know, scholars make much of the exceptions to the rule, right? Because they're more interesting and easier to write articles about and, you know, have something to say about. And they are interesting, right? And they're important for a lot of reasons, those exceptions. But the Qumran site is that sort of region where most of the caves were, where we found most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are not the only places we found scrolls or have found scrolls in the broader Judean desert. Yeah. There have been a number of other discoveries from nearby sites. And one of the things I find very fascinating is that the scrolls that have been found at sites other than the Qumran site, almost all of those agree down to the letter with our Masoretic text from a thousand years later. So in effect, one of the things that we see is most of the exceptions most of the outlying texts are kept at Qumran, right? They're there geographically, physically at the Qumran site. And I'm not sure that I've seen scholarship really grapple with the implications of that or possible implications of that quite as much as we need to, because mm. it may imply things that, you know, the Qumran community had some kind of specific purpose in how they were handling and preserving their texts or taking them out of circulation, things like that. So I find that very fascinating. One of the things that's also interesting, maybe your listeners will know this, but we're still finding Dead Sea Scrolls, actually, as late as last yes. spring. Yes. We found more in one of the caves that sort of we already thought we had discovered everything out of. Now, when I say discovered more, I mean like fragments, little bits and scraps that are smaller than a credit card. So it's not like we're finding whole scrolls here. 
But the discovery processes. And let yeah. me interrupt. Okay. Let me interrupt. And correct me if I'm wrong. Those fragments are typically called lectionarias. Oh, gosh. I used to know well, all this. The fragments had different names based on size and propinquity where they're found, geography, uh, yeah. so forth. That correct. could be. I'm not sure. I mean, it, those may be archaeological terms. I don't know that, to be honest. Okay. Okay. And I could be wrong. But they're very small, and it's almost like a blown-up jigs puzzle that you can't find the cover of the puzzle. Right. And so far as scholars have started to conclude, these little fragments that they found last spring are actually parts of a broader scroll that was discovered back in the 40s and 50s. So they're finding more bits of what was probably the same scroll. And another thing they found in that same cave, you probably know this, was a basket a full-size basket, which, I mean, from the look of it, is about the size of a large footstool. And it is dated to something like 10,000 BC, which is absolutely incredible. They found that in this cave with these other manuscripts. So just really fascinating stuff, I think. And actually, one of the, the one that you're referring to in terms of the recent discovery was actually a Greek papyrus, right? Correct. Yes, correct. And so Good what are point. the, you know, and there is a school of thought that denies that the Greek Old Testament even existed before the time of Jesus. Mm. There's sort of conspiracy theories that it was all invented to, uh, I don't know, kind of this one Bible idea for the whole world. But Will, in terms of the Cave of Horrors discovery, you know, what does that do to that argument? Part of the Minor Prophets, we also have some Leviticus and some other things from the Dead Sea that are in Greek, actually. Yeah, so there are precious few fragments that date to prior to the turn of the era for the Greek Old Testament itself, right? But there are some, and they come primarily from among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, you know, that kind of vitiates the whole argument from my perspective. Now, the counterpoint would be that that's not a full scroll, so it's not the full Septuagint. But this gets back to our original point that it wasn't a full thing, right? It wasn't as if it was leather-bound with the initials on it. So there's going to be a bit of a back-and-forth there, but there are Greek manuscript fragments of the Septuagint, depending on how you define it, that date prior to the turn of the era, right? And so it absolutely was part of, you know, what we could call the textual environment of the early Christian era, right? The mm-hmm. Second Temple Jewish period, Jesus and the Apostles, they are reading and interacting with scripture in not only Hebrew, but also in Greek. If they're not reading it in Greek, which I think they probably were, they're certainly speaking about it in Greek. And there are Greek copies in circulation at the time, although we don't have a huge amount of evidence for it. I had a professor, Dr. Harold Honer, who made the comment that he said, in a sense, we have 120% of the evidence. (laughs) And he likened the manuscripts and the shards and the fragments to, you know, even if we use the uh, shorter, harder reading example, that when someone was copying, whether it was the Septuagint or the New Testament, that, you know, if I've added the word, you know, I use the illustration, the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, one text might say the kingdom of God. One might say the kingdom of God in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so which one of those was, quote, the original And the thumbnail, obviously, elementary view was the shorter, the harder reading was more likely the original. Now, that's full of all sorts of presuppositions. But his point was, when you look at all the shards, P46 was always the one we talked about. When you look at these manuscripts, the variations are so small. Even if you go to, okay, that's not an accurate document. We got 120% of the evidence. We got to tease out what 20 may not be accurate or critically, you know, correct 
but we still have the core message of the gospel. We have the witness of the prophets. We have the veracity of these stories and characters being true. I loved, again, Will, your explanation of the oldest document, and then we find the text of Isaiah primarily Mm -hmm. were kicked back a thousand years earlier than we thought, and it's very Mm -hmm. accurate. I had one scholar show me in the facsimile a, quote, transmission error that was amended. Have you ever seen Mm -hmm. that? I can't remember what chapter of Isaiah it was yeah, in. Yeah, you get this in a lot of the ancient scrolls, the Isaiah scrolls full of this. I don't know what passage yeah. in particular, but it's throughout the scroll where you have copyists essentially being supervised by, you know, a, a, yeah. a chief copyist who comes along. Like a TA, like a right, grader. Right, right. Well, except maybe it's the professor, <laughs> not the TA. You know, he's he's coming along checking the work against a master copy. Wait a minute. Right? Yeah, and yeah. he's going to, and there's marginal corrections, you know, cross this out, write it in the top. Right, And they're very, very concerned for consistency and accuracy. Which we should be when we open the very Word of God and tell people this is what God says, right? Well, again, it's been a privilege to have Dr. Greg Lanier and Dr. William Ross on the broadcast, the Septuagint, what it is and why it matters. And uh, this is a Crossway book that's just coming out. Again, I would encourage folks that are maybe nerds like me or super nerds like Will and Greg, or if you just have an interest to find out, you know, what's this book that we so revere, the very Word of God, and how it was transmitted across generations. And the Septuagint plays a significant role in our understanding of what the book we hold in our hand that you probably have your initials on, right? (laughs) (laughs) Will and Greg, thanks for your time. And I always like to thank scholars and professors for all the work you do behind the scenes, because I know it's a yeoman's labor of love. I don't know how long it took you from conception to publication, but I bet it was more than a weekend. (laughs) That is true. So thanks for your labors, guys. I appreciate it, and I I hope that God uses it greatly for the kingdom. Thank you as well, and thanks for the questions. Absolutely. Blessings. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.